Good to see you all this morning. Let's do this. Let's open to Matthew 13. We're, we're rolling through Matthew right now. Um, but we're going to read a passage in Matthew that needs more context. So we're going to read Matthew 13, and then actually we're going to read in Luke 4 to get better understanding of kind of what's going on in the passage, okay? And there's kind of a little bit more to deal with maybe than normal, so I'm just going to jump into it. Um, right? Meow. So there's this, this small section here in Matthew where Matthew relates this interesting story, and it's this. Um, also, it, this is after, for context, go back and listen if you weren't here last week to Jacob's conversation about the parables that precede this. They're important for what happens next, okay? We can't get into it in full depth right now, but if you want to go back and look, I highly suggest it. Um, and it says this, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from this area, and coming to his hometown, he caught them in, or he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty words? Is not this the carpenter's son? What a, what a slight, apparently, to be the carpenter's son. Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all of these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Which gives us a, a brief glimpse into Jesus' like, immediate family household. And he did not do mighty works there because of their unbelief. So, so we read this and we say, Why were they offended? What was the offense? Was it that the teacher is the carpenter's son? Is that the offense? Right? Should you be offended that this morning someone is opening scripture with you that's the rancher's son? Like, is that bothersome? Probably not, right? It doesn't tell us a lot about what's going on. And then it says he went away from there. He couldn't do mighty works there. Well, in, in what way could he not do mighty works? So we're going to go to the passage in Luke that's going to give a lot more detail. And I don't, when, you read the, when we read the passage in, in Luke, to me, I'm like, Matthew, you left out so much of the good stuff. Like, why did you, this part of the story is, is a lot better. Luke does way better at telling it, right? So let's go there, and we'll look at it right now. It says this, and then he came to Nazareth. Someone real quick, does anyone know anything about Nazareth? Do we know anything about that town, that area? We don't have to, but if you do, now's a good time to say we'll build on it a little. Interesting. It's true. It's notorious for people coming from there wanting to, um, usually the false messiah in that way would be what kind of messiah? What would that messiah maybe be known for? Right. Insurrectionist. Trying to overthrow the Roman government in a violent way. Right. That's like, that's what the messiah was to this town. Okay. That's important to note. What else about this town? Was it like a beautiful hub that was important to the world? No. No, it wasn't. It was a very unastonishing, unimpressive, probably down and out kind of town. Okay? So it would be, did you just name a town? Yeah. I said <laughs> oh, good grief. You, you are breaking the rules. I did not say either one of those towns for the record at all. Um, 
I was going to make up a town. No, I wasn't. Yeah, but it's just a, an unimpressive town with people who thought they were important, with folks that are poor, about average size, nothing impressive whatsoever about it. And that may, been, that, that may have been one of the causes of insurrectionists coming out of there, wanting more, wanting better, wanting different, right? I'm kind of tired of this dreary, um, dead-end life, this, this unimpressive town wanting to, to be something for themselves. And, and Austinites, we have a little bit of, we can kind of relate, we're proud of our town, right? And we want our town to be something. So when we feel like it gets mixed with California or whatever, we get upset as if we were here a long time or something. Like, all of us moved here. Like, we didn't, none of us grew up here. But we're like, except Mandy, Mandy and Eric, yes, you're the, you're the, the unicorns. But it's, it's very rare, right? So, so they have this, every town in this day would want an identity. They would want something collective to call themselves. They weren't as individualistic as us. So they would say in their name, Jesus of Nazareth. That's an important part of him. It's almost like the last name of Jesus. It's not the same, but it's very similar. It's, it's that is my group I identify with. So Jesus identifies with these people, and a lot, of, a lot of his detractors love that he identifies with Nazareth. Nazareth, because it's kind of a crappy town. So they love calling him that. And other people leave it off because they don't want to call him that because they like him. They think he's something, and they've been to that town. So that's just where the story is set, and that's important for what kind of comes next, okay? Um, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. If we want to know what's offensive, we want to know why his hometown hated his message, this is a good start. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The message was not, we are about to get our freedom from Rome. That was not the message. The message wasn't, Nazareth, First, that wasn't it. It's not Jesus' message. It's important to note. And Jesus comes here and can read anything from Isaiah. There's lots in Isaiah about overthrowing oppression with violence. There's lots of violent rhetoric in Isaiah for what would happen to groups of people and all these things. But instead, Jesus picks this passage. He says, I'm not going to make your town famous by, by healing people and bringing hordes of people to fill your shops and your markets. I'm not changing your cities. Um, I'm not making the rich of your city richer. I'm not going to make a name for this town by overthrowing someone and, and starting this bloody rebellion. In fact, what I'm doing, the kind of Messiah that Jesus is, is one that says, I want people that are captive to be set free. I want the oppressed people. And in this synagogue would probably mostly be filled with oppressors, not the oppressed. Say, I want all of your reign to be overthrown. I want people who are blind to see. I want people in prison to be visited. I want it proclaimed, the year of the Lord's favor. Now, another crazy thing, that that phrase, year of the Lord's favor, 
debatable, but some equate it with like this idea of jubilee where you forgive debts and you let people out of prison and you do all these things when they don't deserve it. It's pretty cool. And so Jesus stands up in the middle of everyone and says that. These people that are hopeful that this might be the actual Messiah. This one might work. We really may get our like Judaism back in the most beautiful, free way. And Jesus says, yes, you might. And here's how to have it. And from there, he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant and sits down. Now, he didn't just like go back to a seat. That's not, that's not what that means. He didn't like drop the mic and go. Usually what would happen, the teacher of the synagogue would read standing up and then sit down and everyone else would stand up. We do it backwards because it's smarter to do it this way. <laughs> Just kidding. So you don't, you don't have to stand the entire time someone wants to rant up here, right? But they would do it opposite. So then Jesus sits down to, to start the teaching, right? to start explaining what the passage means. All the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And here's, here's what's interesting. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote me, this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Do some famous stuff, right? Magic trick us, Jesus. Impress us. We're, we're ready. Let's do it. Let's, let's be famous right now. Let's make it happen. But in truth, I tell you, there are many widows. Oh, sorry, I skipped, a, I skipped a portion. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But I say in truth, I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut three years and six months and a great famine came over the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all of the synagogue was filled with wrath. Why would that bother them? What is Jesus trying to say with those two examples? Perhaps Jesus is saying in these two distinct stories, he says there were lots of people hungry back in this time period where there was a famine for three and a half years. And the most important, influential prophet of that time, who did he beeline towards to give them food and to heal a widow and her son? It was someone from another country. It's a foreigner, right? It's a refugee. He says, in the same way, there were lots of lepers in Jerusalem when we have this story of Elisha, again, the prophet of his time. And what happens? He heals a foreigner, right? That's who gets healing. That's who believes. That's who understands. Jesus is telling them here, if you want a Messiah, if you want the kingdom of heaven at hand, it's not about you first theology, It's not about what you can get from this. I'm not going to boost all of you up. I want us all to stoop. 
I want us all to go to somewhere else. This idea of blessed to be a blessing has always been the entire promise of God to his people. That was was the whole thing. The point of it was to be a blessing to the world. And then Jesus gets to tell them, yes, yes, you're hoping for a Messiah. It's time. This is going to be fulfilled today as you hear it in this synagogue. But you aren't going to understand it and you're not going to like it because it's for everyone. Everyone. It's not for you and then someone and then someone and then someone. It's for everyone. They hate it. And they're angry. It says, here's what they did. Um, When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the brow of a cliff (laughs) on which the town was built. So they would throw him off of it but passing through their midst, he went away. So again, the Matthew story is like, he couldn't do many miracles. It's like, yeah, yeah, because they were going to throw him off a cliff and try to kill him in his hometown, in front of his family. It escalated really quick. Here's here's part of why I think it escalates really quick. And I want to think about why is it important for us to talk about the closest people to Jesus, the ones that knew him the best, the ones that like coached his t-ball and like knew his dad. His dad had helped them build a table or something. I don't know. He maybe built the pews in the synagogue. Who knows, right? They know his sisters that are still in town. They work with them. They know the family history. They know the story. They all probably know when they fled to Egypt and when they finally got to come back. They have been with him his entire life. Why is it notable that they're the ones who hate him? Is it just for this principle of the prophet is, isn't known in his hometown? Is that it? Or is it maybe to tell us that, that maybe if we're the ones that think we know Jesus best, maybe, maybe we should take a pause. Maybe if we're the ones who think that we know all the right songs, all the right things to do, that if we think we've got this down, that we understand the kingdom of heaven. We know you, Jesus. We've known you for a long time. We've been doing it right for a minute, right? Maybe we're the ones that might not can hear the truth best. Maybe we're the first ones that would be offended if we actually heard what Jesus wanted. Maybe we should wonder, when we hear Jesus say, go visit those in prison, why we don't care that we don't do it. Maybe that should matter again one day. Maybe we should look at Jesus' words and not be like, oh yeah, I've heard that. I remember the next passage says this. And instead, we should just be filled with amazement that someone this loving like walked around with people. Maybe that should like catch us again and like do something at all to our heart and make us want to change a little bit and make us want to instead of lift a nose up, maybe it should help us to stoop down again. Maybe. Maybe it should remind us that, that the people we seek to help are our brothers and sisters, really. That maybe our fasting doesn't look good anymore. Maybe our songs sound bad because our hearts are just a mess. Maybe it's the ones that think they have it together by saying we don't have it together at the right time. 
Maybe it's us who would really reject the true Jesus in his hometown. And if we think we're above it, then we're rejecting it. If you think that couldn't possibly be you, it's a tough place to be. And when we we read something like this, we see our world and our culture around us. We see this subculture of Christianity that's pervasive in us, and more pervasive in us than we think. We think we're against it. It's, it's, It's in us in an interesting way. It's got roots in all of us just because we grew up individuals, to be honest, in an individualistic culture. But we, we see this Christianity that wants to be self-serving, that wants to win, that wants to be in charge, that wants the upper hand. And Jesus comes to that synagogue, the synagogue of our faith, and says, no, no. In fact, just, it's the year of the Lord's favor right now. You should forgive some debts. You should give people forgiveness that need it from you. You should go ask it, maybe. You should go make right with people that need to be made right with. You should go give sight to someone, you who thinks you, have, you see so far. Maybe we're the blind, right? And, and again, in Matthew, this idea of Jesus not being able to do many miracles because of their lack of faith, I, I wonder sometimes while we're not amazed at the kingdom of heaven around us? Is it at times a lack of faith from us that God wants to do things in the midst of us? Is it, is it, are, are, we, are we not impressed with our ability to sacrifice because we don't want to? <laughs> you know? Is it, I don't know. I wonder about that end statement, especially when Jesus is about to get thrown off a cliff. <laughs> Like, let's push him over. He sneaks through. And then Matthew says he couldn't do anything because they didn't have any faith. It's like, yeah, I would say so. There's a lack of faith right there. Um, but let's do this. Um, let's take, take a few minutes, and we're going to have communion together in just a bit. Um, what, what I want us to really ask ourselves is ask ourselves, what is our posture Towards a message like this? Is it, whew, I'm glad I'm not like the hometown folks. I'm glad I'm humble and don't think I know everything about this and I'm not too close to Jesus. You know what I mean? I'm glad, I'm glad that I'm not one of those that would push Jesus off the cliff, right? Is that our posture or is it a worry of like, oh no, I wonder why I haven't been in amazement at God's work in my life? Why haven't I, I heard Jesus' words and just been caught by them a little? You know, what's, what's going on inside of us? And I just want us to really ask ourselves those questions. And I want us to ask ourselves the questions of, are we also ones that want to see the year of the Lord's favor? Or do we want status quo? Do we want stability? Do we want us to just live a nice life and raise kids and raccoons and live the dream? Like, is that what we want? Do we just want normalcy? What do we want? Hopefully, we're a people that are starting to, every day, want more and more the year of the Lord's favor. People to be released from captivity from things. People's relationships made right again. The blind to see, the ones in prison visited, people forgiven of their debts, the year of the Lord's favor. And we just ask for that. So let me pray for us.
and then Holly's going to come and lead communion. So, God, we, we do look at this passage, and part of us, part of me, honestly says, how could they? <laughs> how could they do such a thing as to reject such a beautiful message? And then I remember so many parts of my life where I reject that message. I reject, at times, sacrificial giving because I want our bank account to look a certain way. I reject risk because I want stability within my family. I reject forgiveness because I'm angry. I reject the kingdom of heaven at hand because I want to be in charge. I want to be above. I want these things, and I hate that. I hate that about myself. I hate that about our subculture. I hate that when our church reacts that way. We want to be a people who honestly and truly, with every bit of us, want to be a blessing. We want to be people who aren't afraid of hard teachings that don't fit our worldview. We want to be moldable to your kingdom. We want to be people who aren't afraid to learn and be wrong. Please help us have this posture with you. In Jesus' name, amen.